Welcome to Heartbreak and Hope with Pat Barbarito, the show that explores how to build up or break down any relationship with confidence, clarity, and compassion. I started this podcast as a way to explore the heartbreak of relationships and the hope that can follow. I'm using this episode to reflect upon what I've learned as a result of talking to our guests, hearing from our audience, and I want to share with you a little bit of what I've learned from each episode. One of the things I hope I accomplished is making the idea of chatting with a lawyer a little less scary. I've heard from many of you. I've received emails that are so encouraging. Some of you have said that it feels like you're sitting with me over a cup of coffee, like we're old friends. And some of you have told me that you've had these light bulb moments when I've spoken with our guests. And that's how I feel. I feel like I'm speaking with friends about heartbreak and hope. So our first episode was with journalist Carol Martin, who's also a good friend. And one of the things that was so significant about that conversation was the concept of shame. Carol and I both had the same experience. We felt so much shame when our marriage ended. And Why is that? Why is it that we feel embarrassment? We feel, you know, shame. There's no other word, but it's a really common theme. When marriages end, we feel like a failure. I felt like a failure. I still say my marriage ended. I still don't say I was divorced 13 years later with an ex-husband who passed away. But this is what I learned. Talking about shame is liberating. I've never felt so free and liberated in my life as I have since I've started this podcast. There's no more embarrassment left. My marriage failed and it was lousy while it was in existence. It was literally like I felt a weight was off my shoulder. I'm not embarrassed anymore. All right. I don't use the D word. I still say my marriage ended, but I do realize that when we release shame, we could express ourselves and share our feelings and become hopeful. And I've done that through this process. I also learned talking with Carol is she and I spoke a lot about the concept of a relationship in life and what that means. And I think it's funny. I I think particularly the older you get, for me at least, it doesn't necessarily mean marriage or living together. It means being what Carol called well-yoked you know, tied, connected with somebody, moving in the same direction. That's what it means to me to be in a relationship at this point. The label of marriage or living together is less significant than knowing I have a partner to move through life with. And that was a powerful conversation for me. I think that as a younger woman or younger person, often we want to be married. That's the goal. I think at this point in my life, being well-yoked or having a partner, a life partner is more important. Had I understood as a younger woman what it really meant to have a partner, I would not have married who I married, but I didn't know any better. I genuinely didn't understand what it meant to have somebody to go with me through life, row in the same direction. I just didn't understand it. And by speaking about it, reading about it, learning about it, and talking about it on this platform, I have a completely different view of what a life partner is. The great poet Maya Angelou says something about, you know, when you know better, you do better. That phrase has gotten me through so much of life's hardships. True story. Every time I feel ashamed or embarrassed, how did I not know better? 
I must have seen things. I read that quote from Maya Angelou and I feel better. I feel like, well, I know better now, so I'm doing better. So I'm less ashamed. Am I kinder to myself? Um, I'm getting there, but not completely. I haven't forgiven myself. Before I was married, I, I've shared that I was engaged. That was a whole relationship at the time. I don't think that would have survived long term, but I don't think I understood what it felt like, your heart felt like to be in a complete relationship. So I assumed the person I married, that's what marriage or relationships was. I didn't know the difference. I didn't have role models growing up. My parents did the best they could. I just, I really didn't know the difference. And it is liberating beyond words to know the difference because when you know better, you do better. So I found Dr. Welch, Duana Welch, through this process and reaching out to her was one of the smarter moves I've made for my own personal growth, my professional growth, and for this podcast. I read her book before I reached out to her. Her discussion of social science at first, I thought, hmm, is this real? But light bulbs, after speaking with her, after reading her books, and certainly after doing this podcast series with her, I learned that, you know, true love doesn't just miraculously appear. We need to take control of finding it, of looking for it. We need to be mindful. One of the things that she spoke about in our original podcast or the first one we did together was the idea of you wouldn't go on a trip without a roadmap preparing a roadmap, know where you want to end up when you're looking for a partner, because there's this myth that love miraculously or magically happens. Well, love happens, but you need to know what it looks like and what you're looking for. So that was really profound. One of the most brilliant things that I got from Dr. Welch, and it sounds very straightforward. And I've shared this with so many friends And they all say, geez, I never thought about that. It's this preparing of this desired traits list. I have shared this idea with many friends. It got to a point where dating was, that was a requirement for me that people prepare that. It seems so simple, right? Just write down what you want. It's not that simple. When you really sit down and write down and you're honest with yourself, those traits that are necessary, that you require, it's eye-opening because you have to be honest with yourself. You know, you can't cheat because if you do, you're only cheating yourself. So preparing that desired trait list and sticking to it is the best bit of advice that I've ever gotten in this relationship journey. Preparing that desired traits list, I think is about being self-respecting. Look, everybody's desired traits list is different. It doesn't make mine better and yours worse. It doesn't make the person I want to go out with better or worse for having different desired traits, but it really identifies that which is important to me, what I need, what I want, what my goals are. And I will tell you, I did not deviate at all. And my list was long because when you really commit to writing, you know, I think what happens is there's this thought that if I write everything down, it's like a job that I'm looking for. That's not true. It's who I am. Again, doesn't make me better or worse than you. It just, I know who I am at this point in my life. So when I wrote things down, like the person has to have resolved conflict with former relationships or spouses, I don't want somebody who's angry. doesn't mean if they're angry, they're wrong. It's just, that's not for me. So writing those down and then looking at it and being true to yourself and not cheating and saying, well, I could do without this. 
I think that's the magic formula. I do. I think it works. I mean, look, there's a lot of intangibles too. You know, there's core qualities, there's chemistry, but those desired traits are the first. Now, let me say this. Somebody could have every desired trait on your list and they still could not be the person for you, but it's a great starting point. Money, marriage, mortality, all those really not sexy. Let's put it this way. It's not foreplay. It's one thing to say to somebody that you have resolved conflicts or that you have certain political views. It's another thing to say to somebody, let's talk about money because it's awkward. But one of the things on my list was that somebody is financially able to be responsible for themselves and is financially responsible. I'm a responsible person. I want to be involved with somebody who's responsible. Those were important things, but they're really uncomfortable to talk about, right? One of the things that Dr. Welch talks about are the hard conversations. This is a harder conversation to me than about when do you want to have sex, but you got to talk about it. So when I had my partner, Gary Botwinick on, and Gary is, you know, he really is extraordinarily insightful about money and relationships. And we talked about financial responsibility, how money matters, and how you have to understand money going into relationship, getting married, dying. Money matters and understanding it is very important. Again, not the most romantic or sexy topic, but I'll tell you what's really not romantic and sexy. If you're involved with somebody who's a financial disaster and you didn't know it, believe me, that'll take the romance right out of the picture. Hard conversations are about marriage, sex, money, family, family and sex a little easier. Money is difficult. And marriage is difficult, but you have to have those conversations. And even if you're not going to get married, I think you need to talk about money. How are we going to do this? In doing divorce work for over 40 years, I have worked with people and their finances. People who make far less money than others have far more saved and accumulated. People's relationship with money is really a very intimate fact about who they are. And you got to talk about it and you have to understand it because as Gary always says, your marriage is going to end. You are either going to get divorced or somebody's going to die, but you will not be married forever. Look, you may be involved with somebody who could tolerate high credit card debt. I couldn't, but you might be. Maybe the two of you are similarly situated about that. You might be involved with somebody who is frugal beyond belief. Okay, if that's for you, so be it. But you have to have the conversation. I think the women's movement in many ways allowed women to talk about sex in a way that perhaps traditionally we thought men talked about it, but there's been no how to talk about money movement. Interesting. Nobody tells us when's the right time to talk about money. In fact, often when people come to us for prenuptial agreements, they haven't yet approached their intended with the fact that their family requires it or they require it. Now, these are people who've had long-term relationships. They've clearly been having sex. They're even talking about being married, but they've been tiptoeing around the prenuptial discussion. The other question or the other conversation, at least with regard to a relationship, I think we need to have is how much is enough? How much do you need? And I think that's part of the hard money conversation. At least at my stage of life, people are beginning to think about retirement, men and women in their 60s, late 60s, 70s. So. The question becomes, do I still need to work to accumulate or do I have enough and it's a quality of life issue? That's been a very big conversation at my stage of life, at my stage of dating. How much is enough? How much do we need to have a good life together? 
I think that says something. So if I'm speaking with someone who needs to keep accumulating because they need more and more and more because I'm not so sure that that's the focus I want to have in my life at this point. What I want to have in my life at this point is a partner who wants to enjoy life, be financially responsible because there's just so much time to do it. So how much do you need? I think is part of that money conversation. Finding love online was a powerful episode for me. I had to explore online dating and following Dr. Welch's advice has been profound. One of the things that I got out of that episode is she spoke a lot about getting yourself mentally ready, not thinking you're above it, and also not thinking you're compromising your integrity by looking for love online. But I thought one of the perspectives that she had is when she said, when you're writing a profile, don't talk about yourself. Talk about the character traits you want in somebody, you know, so we're also inclined to say on this, on that. It's really not who you are. It's what you're looking for. So when you write a profile, you want to be really as detailed as possible in a playful, fun way, of course, to communicate. This is who I'm looking for instead of writing about ourselves, which I think isn't the traditional way these profiles are written. And, and I think in order to do that, you have to have your desired traits list or your must-have list ready. You know, you're not going to write it in a linear way, but you are going to write about what you're looking for, what qualities you're looking for in a person. And I think you need to be detailed. She also spoke a lot about, I thought this was interesting, the photos, you know, the profile photos and the power of looking at somebody sort of head on in a photo it makes sense to use photos that are powerful about who you are, make eye contact, are approachable. And she spoke about that in a way that I had not thought about it before. The other thing we spoke about was who you respond to and how you respond to them. I, I thought this was interesting. Anybody who sends you a heart, hey, how you doing? Hi, gorgeous, delete. Because if you've written a fairly specific profile, and you were clear about what you're looking for, and they write back, hey, you know, next. When somebody takes the time to read with specificity what you've written and respond with specificity in a way that catches your attention, that's when you say, hmm, you want to avoid the conversational volley. You know, you don't want to get involved in these little, you know, cute little messages back and forth. There's a magic moment when you take it offline and say, would you like to email or text and then have a conversation? And if somebody is coming towards you and they're really interested in who you are and meet your criteria, you'll know that fairly early on. And that's when we go back to you ask the tough questions. And look, you don't do it on the first phone call, although I think she mentioned she did, but fairly early on, you should know. Is this person somebody who wants to get married? Is this somebody who understands that waiting for physical intimacy might be important to you? Is this somebody who has your similar values? Because if you start getting attracted to somebody, if you start falling for somebody or liking somebody, and those tough questions aren't answered, it's hard to pedal back and answer them. If you make a decision that I want a life partner and I am going to look for a life partner, You've got to be willing to do the work. 
I think it's a matter of mentally preparing yourself. We spoke a lot about that in that episode. How do you mentally prepare yourself for meeting people that might not be suitable, for getting your feelings hurt? You're just simply weeding out the problems and the people who aren't for you, but it doesn't feel like that at the time. You know, I I didn't start dating. I've shared with you until I was in my 60s because I was raising my children alone. But even that, having your feelings hurt, being crushed emotionally is brutal. It gets easier and eventually you filter out the problems and the people who aren't for you and you learn more. So I look at it like this. You're sort of in this journey, right? In this continuum of time where you're processing people, you're learning about people, people aren't for you, you're moving on. And if you stop midway before the journey's finished, you marry the wrong person or you end up with the wrong person. But sometimes midway, we're tired. So we just say, eh, this is as good as it's going to get. And the truth is, it's not as good as it's going to get. There is a better. Our conversation with Neil Godfrey about the gray divorce was powerful. And I heard from some of our audience after that saying, hey, thank you. I never thought about having, you know, team me in place, a financial team or a, a support group. And that was a helpful tool. And that was a helpful tool, particularly at a certain age. So if you're in your 60s and you find yourself uh, uncoupled or suddenly single, I think Dwayne calls it, it's challenging. Now, I think it's challenging because you're not in your prime earning years generally, right? So money's a little scarier. Health may be a little more challenging, So the person you thought you'd be relying upon to go through some health journeys with isn't there. Many of our friends and family have moved away or moved on. So it's a little, our children are usually grown and out of the house. So I think the gray divorce or the divorce when you're older presents its own set of circumstances and it leads people to evaluate a little differently when a marriage should end. Do I stay because I have company? Is being happy that important? Those are the questions we ask. And do I have the finances, the resources to support myself and live the way I want to live? And those are things that you need to understand at any age. But I think in your 60s, you really need to understand that. I will tell you this myth of being unmarketable. I don't buy. Uh, It's been my experience and my experience with representing men and women a little older that Real grown-ups want real grown-up partners because they want to explore things together. They want to go through life's ups and downs together. Children are usually at a certain age. They're financially similarly placed. So I, I think this myth that men want younger women all the time is really not true. Sometimes it's true, but a lot of times it's not. But I do think that the money conversation, the health conversation, the being alone conversation is very different when you're older. And that's why the gray divorce presents its own unique set of circumstances. And that conversation with Neil really brought that home. I loved our episode of View from the Bench. We set out to demystify the the court's role and judges' roles in the divorce court. And, And I think we did a little bit. I mean, you know, just having the judges speak about what a typical first day in court is like or what a judge can do. We spoke about, you know, judges can't make bad people good people. They can't make inattentive parents attentive parents. They can't make you have more money than you had. They can't punish people for the most part for being not nice because fault is generally, of course, there's always exceptions, not a factor. 
So I think just hearing from these judges what they can do and they can't do is helpful for people because people are so desperate when they go into a courtroom. They want somebody to wave a magic wand and fix their problems. And it's heartbreaking to see that desperation and that need and that fear. But I think hearing judges say we can only do what we can do was helpful to people. Uh, We want to help. We want to do better, but we can't. We're not magicians. I like that episode. I heard from a lot of people that it was the first time that they heard a candid conversation about what goes on behind the scenes. And I think people need to hear that so they're not terrified and they're not walking into a black hole when they walk into a courtroom. I think they need to be realistic about what could happen in a courtroom and what can't. I also think that one of the things that the judges spoke about, which was helpful, is the idea of taking control over your own destiny. While judges are there to make decisions and guide decisions, ultimately, if you can get beyond whatever feelings you're having or distrust or bitterness, controlling your own destiny will have a much better outcome than relying upon people who know you as well as they can, but really don't know your story. I I thought that was helpful to hear that because justice doesn't always happen in a courtroom. Boy, is that disappointing, right? But it's true. I mean, look at any criminal, civil, divorce court, not always a just result. It's the best we can do. It's the best the court can do. But control over your own destiny, in my opinion, is something people should strive for if it's possible. Sometimes you're married to somebody that you can't do that with. But if you can, you should try to. And, and, you know, sometimes people are married to bad people. Uh, Sometimes people are married to not nice people. Sometimes people are married to insensitive people. It's the reality of it. That's hard to accept. You know, the person you are most intimate with, most vulnerable with, turns on you. What a violation. But I go back to hope. And time after time, I see people who can get through that ugliness And there is a light. The human spirit is so resilient and people find new partners. They find new happiness. They find new love. Doesn't look the same, but it's hopeful. I, I, you know, I believe in the magic of love. I believe in the magic of hope. I've seen it too many times for it not to be real. Thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Please give us a five-star rating and leave a review so more people can listen in to Heartbreak and Hope with Pat Barbarito.